Slack is a messaging application with millions of users. The desktop application is an Electron app, which is effectively a web browser dedicated to running Slack. This front end is built with React.js and other JavaScript code, and the application is incredibly smooth and reliable, despite its complexity. When a user boots up Slack, the application needs to figure out what data to fetch and where to fetch it from. Companies which use Slack heavily have thousands of messages in their history, and Slack needs to determine which of those should be pulled into the client. There are profile images and logos and custom emojis, all of which are used to define the user's custom workspace experience. Anuj Nair joined Slack in late 2017. In the years since he has been with the company, Anuj helped write the Slack front-end client, including work on the boot-up experience, the caching infrastructure, and the role of service workers. Anuj joins the show to discuss his work on the Slack front-end architecture and the canonical view layer problems that Slack faces. This was a fantastic episode about front-end infrastructure, and I learned a lot of new information about how Slack works and how to build a high-quality desktop web application. Anuj Nair, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You joined Slack in late 2017. What were the biggest pain points in the front-end performance at that time? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think, so when Slack initially came out of beta, I think it came out of beta around February of 2014, the entire idea behind engineering and product at the time was just find market fit and make sure that you know the users who were using it were happy with it, the customers who were paying for it were happy with it. And so all of the engineering practices over time really just developed kind of naturally and what was the fastest to do. Slack at the time was incredibly fast growing, like incredibly fast growing. And so there wasn't always time for best practices. I think the mantra at the time very much was do what you have to do today to make things work and then move on to the next task, just because there was so much to do. And so around 2017 came point as to where the current you know, front-end infrastructure that we had, all of our build infrastructure, things like that, just weren't scaling to the point at which Slack really needed. And so one of the Rex that was put out was for, for one of my roles, which was front-end infrastructure at the time. And it was all based around trying to make infrastructure and architecture for Slack, the product, and for all of the external sites that you might use to administer Slack and things like that. And so I came in and helped to really try and build that up. Things like webpack processes and build processes and best developer practices, how to monitor front-end performance, things like that. There are clients on mobile on OSX, on Windows, on desktop web. And I know the clients vary across these different surfaces. Which of the clients did your work touch? So my work touches all of the desktop clients. So that's anything on Windows, on Mac, or on Linux. We use Electron to essentially make our product platform agnostic. It's a great product where you essentially use web technologies, but you can create desktop applications, which is very powerful. And so we code in JavaScript and CSS, HTML, all of those things as well. We use Hack on the back end, and then we can bundle it up in an Electron executable and ship it off to customers. Yeah, so when I boot up Slack, it loads this Electron desktop app. This is built from React components and JavaScript. And when I load Slack, 
there's a ton of data that could potentially load for my Slack application. Absolutely. I mean, I've got yeah. three years worth of chat messages between me and different people in my in my channels, and I have a small company, so there's not much data relative to a bigger company. But so there's a ton of data that could potentially load, but you want the boot up time to be low. Obviously, you don't need to load everything. You don't need to go all the way back in history, but there is this essential trade-off between how much data you want to load and the performance. Can you describe the trade-offs between loading the Slack application quickly versus loading all the data you could potentially need? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because um, like you say, for companies who have been using Slack since the beginning, they have gigabytes and gigabytes, if not terabytes of data all stored on the Slack server. And so you really have to decide what you want to load and when you want to load it. Very common for web applications is to only load the things which are currently in view. So you only load you know, the JavaScript, the CSS, which is in the viewport at the time. Slack does something similar in that it only loads the JavaScript and CSS it needs for the page. But for the most part, that is the majority of the Slack application. Because once you open the Slack app, you've got everything there and you're going to see there's no scrolling really unless it's in a message pane. And so the, the only real difference there becomes to how much data do we load? And so we tend to, we have like a prioritization model of how much data we load and when we load it. We call it frequency, which is a mix between how recently it's been used and how frequently it's used. And so that's all like calculated on the back end using like AI and machine learning and whatnot. And then when you, an individual, load Slack, we can try and figure out what you might be most interested in seeing really quickly and load that instantly. And then all other data which you might need eventually comes in the background over time, you know, during idle time and things like that. Does the fact that this is an Electron app rather than an actual application in the browser does that have any impact? Does that matter? Or does the Electron app basically function the same way that it would function if it was just a browser application? Pretty much functions in exactly the same way. Electron allows us closer tie-ins to desktop APIs. So things like if we wanted to interact with Siri or something like that, for example, you can't necessarily do that in a browser, but you can do that using you know, Mac's native bindings and things like that. And so that's that's pretty interesting. But for the most part, Electron, a node wrapper, essentially allows us to interact with the desktop as if it's a normal desktop application. As we get to where Slack is today in terms of its front end, and we talk about what has happened since you joined the company, there was a rewrite of the client. Can you explain what the motivation was for Slack rewriting its desktop client? Yeah, absolutely. So this rewrite started actually around when I joined. People were kind of prototyping it at the time. And a very small subset of front-end engineers, there was like three or four of them at the time, essentially thought to themselves, like, the front-end infrastructure we have at the moment isn't scaling. Let's completely rethink all of the principles that we initially started Slack with and see if we can make something better. So two years ago, React, very popular. It's a proven model. So many companies are using it. And it's extremely powerful for data-driven applications. So Slack is a hugely data-driven application. So it made complete sense to move over to a React front end. Previously, we were using templating languages like 
I think, I think it was Smarty or Handlebars or something like that. And then for, you know, React ties really nicely in with Redux. So we started exploring Redux as well. And so one of the very first parts of Slack, which we actually prototyped in this new setup, was the emoji picker. Customers are, or users are allowed to upload their own emoji. And some of our customers have tens of thousands of custom emoji uploaded. It's, it's like crazy numbers. And so we thought this was a really good stress test to see how this would work in our system, but also really quite nicely isolated. And so, you know, we created it, we deployed it, it worked really nicely. And so we were like, okay, let's make this a big project. It's, you know, it's a proven thing now. Let's rewrite the, the client. So to loop back to your, your actual question, like what were the motivations? The first and foremost was unlocking new features in the Slack app. There's only specific features which you can enable when all of your components are rendering in exactly the same way or all of your data is accessed in exactly the same way. So things like dark mode. It's a really interesting concept because for it to work unanimously across the entire application, every single component which is built has to know how to switch between different themes, right? And so previously when we were using templating languages, handlebars, smarty, things like that. Well, if you want to update the DOM, say you open the emoji picker, there's multiple ways to do that. You could interact with the DOM in place and open it. You could create a, you know, a sub DOM and then build it and then attach it into your main DOM. You could have hidden parts of the DOM already there and then just unhide them. There's like so many different ways you can interact with the DOM there. But React only allows you to update the DOM in one way. Redux only allows you to access data in one way. And so that's a perfect match for features like dark mode, where you say, okay, I want to set my theme as dark mode and then all of the components which are built in exactly the same way know how to render a dark mode version of that component. So features, that was one of the, the first one. And the second one was performance, for sure. Because Slack had been built in a very kind of like natural way and whatever needed to be done was done, a lot of the principles had just developed over time. So at the, at the time Slack was built, we kind of sent, whenever a user booted Slack, we would send them a payload of everything they might need to interact with Slack, like who are the users in your workspace, what channels are you a member of, what files are there, things like that. And then we would connect to a WebSocket and then get real-time data for things which came over that WebSocket as you were using Slack. But you can imagine, like some of our largest customers have hundreds of thousands of users and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of channels in a single workspace. And so that becomes really unmanageable. Just think about the database queries which might have to go through to try and get a hundred thousand users, send that all down to a user who's booting Slack. That's a huge amount. So this rewrite really allowed us to rethink this principle of sending this large payload down every time someone booted Slack. And instead what we do is we conditionally fetch everything now. What we do is we we kind of send messages, like messages are the main bulk of Slack. And in a message, if we say, okay, Jeff is in my message, I've at mentioned Jeff, I need Jeff's information now. So conditionally go and grab Jeff's information and send it back to me. So that turned our entire principle on its head. Instead of sending everything, we sent down the minimum amounts and then requested the data we needed to fill in all of the different missing parts. 
So performance, that was a massive win for us. There were a few other reasons as well, things like developer efficiencies and developer performances. If everyone's developing in the same way, it becomes very easy to move teams to help debug issues. You mean all the different clients? All the different components, all of the different, like iOS, Android, uh, built in those different languages. The Electron app is built in web languages, but we have multiple products at Slack. Things like that, most people are familiar with the main chat application, but we also have a calls feature where you can call face-to-face on Slack, or there's a documents feature where you can collaboratively edit a document to to put under Slack. And so we have all these, uh, our latest one actually, a big one at the moment is the workflow builder, where you can automate tasks in Slack just by clicking or starting actions and things like that. And so we have teams who are dedicated to building these products, but at the time, Previously, before we rewrote the client, they were all built in different ways or architected in different ways. Their setups, their deployments, everything like that were all very different. And so we standardized everything across the board to make sure that every single app Slack application, or which is built internally, boots in the same way. It uses the same configs, the same ESLint and prettier settings, all of these kind of things, because it makes... It allows developers to jump around projects if they want to, to help debug other people's issues. And it's actually made our our front-end team extremely close because even though I work on a very specific team on very specific things, if someone has an issue in a part of their developer build pipeline, which I help maintain, I can now jump in and understand all of their code and why it might be you know, breaking or have an issue or something like that. Now, you're not talking about the actual client code being the same. You're not saying, like, the iOS app works the same as the web app in the sense that, like, it's all React Native or something. You're more talking about the boot up time, the data interchange time, right? Like the networking and the communication between the front end and the back end. Yeah, exactly. I'm talking more about the architecture, the front-end architecture of how Slack clients are built. So they all boot in the same way. They all bootstrap themselves in the same way. They all set up Redux in the same way and render React in the same way and things like that. But are you saying that the mobile applications use Redux? No, sorry. might be explaining this poorly. When I talk about Slack applications. I'm talking not necessarily about the apps that you install into your workspace. I'm talking more about the products that Slack builds. Right, right, right. So you're saying like there are people at Slack who work on the documents team. There are people at Slack that work on the workflows team. There are people at Slack that work on the calls team. These different teams need to interact with, for example, CDN infrastructure. They need their React components or their front-end components to consume CDN resources in a similar way. You know, they need to, uh, you have this notion of cold startup versus warm startup where somebody's loading a, a Slack client on a computer for the first time, that client is going to load differently than if Slack has loaded on the computer before. 
across all the different Slack components, the Slack products, you want there to be a similar experience of data data interchange. Exactly. That's exactly right. So it's things like the same Webpack config file builds all of those apps and they all use ES modules and things like that. It's more the principles and programming paradigms which are the same between all of these products when before they were very different. And so if the course team had, you know, something they wanted to debug, it was very difficult for a docs front-end engineer to jump into their code base and try and help them out if they, if they needed that extra help. And talking about before that rewrite, can you just give some more context on in the period where everybody had gone down different paths, like the calls team was doing something differently than the core chat team, which was doing something differently than the documents team, when everybody had gone down their own path, what were the consequences to the overall engineering org? How did that actually, that divergence penalize the overall architecture? That's a great question. It's not necessarily penalizing the architecture. It was more penalizing the speed at which we could develop new features and help each other to debug different issues. So now that we are all essentially speaking a common language with our like config files and things like that, it's extremely easy to jump around different repos and code bases and just start diving in and developing things. It's small things, but imagine if you're in one repo and you know, you're know you coding and your line lengths are set to 100 characters and you, know, you have trailing commas on arrays and things like that. And then you jump to another code base and that's not necessarily the case. Well, that's going to slow you down because you know, your linters are going to complain, things like that. So it's going to slow down the rate of development. When you remove these like small nuances and just get everyone on a common playing field, things just work and it's just magic. And you can just churn out things really fast and develop things in a really efficient way. And so those are like the smallest of examples. But the larger examples were things like deployment and how to how the different products communicated with each other, things like that. How has the usage of CDN infrastructure changed since you rewrote the Slack architecture? Not too much. Before we rewrote all of the different products, we were still using our CDN in a very similar way. We were you know, bundling all of our, our assets up. It was a very, very simple bundler, homegrown, and uploading them to the CDN. And then you know, our, whenever you boot the app, the app knows which resources to pull down from the CDN and start using them. But when we rewrote the client, we rewrote it using Webpack, ES modules, all of those good things. And we still uploaded them in the same way, but it, as we started introducing new features, especially ones which pulled down from the CDN more often, we eventually found that our CDN costs started rising just because, you know, we have 12 million, I think it's like daily active users, which is huge. And so if all of them are consistently pulling down items from the CDN, that adds up really quickly. And so one of the things that we changed when we rewrote the client was that we tried making things more lazily load so that we didn't pull down as much data from the client. We introduced service workers so that we could start caching data resources locally on the user's machine and reuse those. So things like that. When you have a huge scale of users, all of these tiny little things start adding up to your bottom line on, on uh, how effective it is. 
I want to talk a little bit more about the boot up of Slack. So when Slack starts up on your computer, the boot up time is going to depend on a number of things. Like if the client, has, if you've loaded a Slack client on your computer before and, you know, I guess how much data is for your session is stored in the CDN. And also, I guess it's worth asking how much data can you actually store on the user's computer? Like when I load my Slack client, is it taking any data from disk or is it going over the network for all of its data? So we have a couple of concepts when you boot Slack, like you you mentioned, this concept of a cold boot and a warm boot. And we've defined a cold boot to be when you're booting Slack for the very first time and nothing exists. The only thing that we know when you're booting Slack for that very first time is who you are, because you will have to have signed into your account, and what team you're trying to boot into. And so as soon as we've authenticated that, we then have to go and fetch absolutely everything to boot Slack, from resources like JavaScript, CSS, fonts, sounds, all the way down to images, all the way down to all of the data, which then fills the Slack client. There's so much stuff that we have to download initially. But for most web applications, that download time and even passing and executing all of that takes a long time. And download is usually the longest part of that boot up phase. So we introduced service workers and that introduced the concept of what we call a warm boot. So with service workers, we're able to intercept requests and we can actually store specific responses from the CDN on the user's machine. So when you initially boot Slack in a cold boot, we go and fetch all of that data from the CDN, and then we store it via the service worker on the user's machine in something called the cache storage. And so when they when the user then comes to reboot Slack, if they refresh Slack or they close it down and reopen it, we first check if the assets we need are on the user's machine. And if they are, we can just completely skip the network phase and reuse those assets instead. It's extremely powerful because it cuts out one of the longest phases of booting an application, the network phase. Part of the rewrite that we did, we actually moved as much resource and data as possible onto edge caches. So not just like a CDN, but also we have a, I guess it's like a homegrown data CDN, which we call Flannel. Essentially stores the user's data in a secure way on a network edge instead of it all coming from a server on like the US East Coast or something like that. So by serving everything from the edge, we can speed up network responses, but we can speed up boot even more by storing all of that data on the user's machine as well. I want to get into a lot of those details that you just mentioned, but one of the reasons we're, we're doing a show is because I, I was curious about Slack's usage of service workers. Can you explain what a service worker is? Yeah. So a service worker is, I guess it's like a proxy between your browser and the and your server. It works by intercepting, as soon as it's been installed, it works by intercepting 
all network requests and then allows you to do essentially whatever you want to do with them. You can replace them. You can redirect them. You can drop requests if you want. You can do absolutely anything. But a very common use case for service workers is to intercept the responses and store them on disk and to intercept the requests and then check if you have that request on disk or not. And if so, reserve it from disk. My understanding is that a service worker is a custom piece of JavaScript that is going to run inside your browser in a separate thread than the main application loading. So you can set custom logic within that service worker to respond to, for example, different conditions of how those resources might be loading. Right? Yeah, like that, if that's you, exactly I right. guess if, you're, if your core application needs to load a certain JPEG, if that JPEG is on your desktop, if it's on your disk somewhere, then you would much rather fetch it from disk than go all the way to the server. Yeah, that's exactly right. So how does a service worker script get onto my browser? How does it get installed? Sure. So you have to install a service worker from your main application. I think it's called like navigator.serviceworker install or something like that. But you essentially provide your main application a path to where your service worker is located on your CDN or your server. And then browser APIs will go and fetch it and install it in a separate thread. The interesting thing about service workers, though, is that they don't take over what's called controlling the page until subsequent requests start occurring. So when you first boot Slack, for, for instance, we tell a browser API to go and fetch the service worker, install it, but you're technically not using that service worker until you refresh Slack or you close Slack and open it again. And there's a good reason for that. That's because service workers, they want to make sure they are interacting with a compatible version of your code. So if you install a service worker, you might have specific logic saying, oh, still go and fetch all of my assets or my data or whatever it might be, which isn't compatible with that specific version of the service worker. This becomes more apparent when you start making changes to the actual service worker code itself. If service worker v1 is incompatible with v2, when v2 installs, you don't want it to start controlling the page straight away because then you're going to start having errors with the current running code. So service worker technologies work by waiting until all, it's called active clients, close down before activating the new service worker which it has downloaded and installed. And so once all of those clients have closed down and then you reopen your website, that new version of the service worker can take effect and start controlling it and doing whatever you've told it to do. Tell me more about how a service worker interacts with HTML elements. It doesn't interact with HTML or the DOM per se. It's a really interesting concept because as web developers, we usually only have to think of a single thread in JavaScript. 
single-threaded, and only for a specific runtime. But service workers run in a completely independent thread, and the scope as to what they can access is much more reduced than what the main thread can access. So service workers really can only interact with fetches to your APIs or your CDNs or whatever it might be. A service worker has three main events, which you can tell it what to do. The events are called install, activate, and fetch. The install event is triggered when the browser detects that a new version of the service worker is available. You've changed the service worker code. And the browser does that automatically for you. It does, every time you load your site, it does a byte comparison check of the current service worker running and the new one where you've told it the service worker lives. And if they're different, then it will download that new version and run your install event. And so at that point, you usually tell it what assets to pre-cache or you know, what you want to store on disk or anything like that. When a service worker gets to activate itself, i.e. all of those running clients were closed and then reopened, the service worker calls the activate event, and that's when it starts taking over and controlling the page which it's been registered on. And so at that point, at Slack at least, we usually clean up old assets which have downloaded to disk from previous service workers. They're no longer useful anymore, so we clean all of those up. The new service worker in its install event downloaded all of those new assets it needed. And so the activate event for us is all about cleaning up old stuff. And then that's it. The service worker is essentially running in its own thread now. And so every time you write a fetch event or request a resource from the network, the service worker will intercept it. And you get to decide what you want to do with that request. Like we said, modify it, drop it, reply with something else, respond with something else, whatever you want to do. And it continues to do that forever. Every single network request will go through your service worker and your service worker will run indefinitely. And that is really interesting because it creates a whole new level of thinking for us. We need to now start thinking about our asset life cycle and our service worker life cycle and error recovery and things like that. So there's a whole new vector of things that you have to start thinking about as soon as you start using service workers. Can you summarize a few basic example use cases where a service worker could help me build a web application, whether you're talking about Slack or something outside of Slack? For sure, yeah. At Slack, we use service workers for two main things. The first one is performance. Like we said, if you store all of your assets on the user's disk, you can cut out the network phase of trying to fetch those assets. And that's usually the majority of trying to download an asset. And so that's huge performance. The second one is actually unlocking new features for us. So you can actually use a subset of Slack offline now because everything is available which is needed to boot Slack on the user's disk. So if you turn off your Wi-Fi, if you're on a plane or something like that, and you open your laptop and you refresh Slack, Slack will still boot because it doesn't need anything from the network to boot itself now, which is phenomenal to think about because websites, of course, the idea behind all of them is you need to get data from the server. And so if we're storing all assets and all data on the user's disk, which they might need, 
they can use Slack offline. And so that's great for, for people who are commuting or are on planes. They can, you know, catch up on old messages. They can write drafts. They can, you know, star different things. And so the idea is that when Slack then detects that it has Wi-Fi connection again, it's on the internet, it can resync itself with the server to, you know, to catch up and send all of your queued messages over as well. So the service worker is doing the negotiation around resources, basically switching on, is this computer connected to the internet or not? The There's browser APIs to help tell you whether a website is connected to the internet or not. I think it's called navigator.online, and that returns a Boolean, are you connected to Wi-Fi or not? The service worker just acts as a proxy for that if it receives a request where it has that response on disk, it will just cut out the network and just short circuit it and re- respond straight away with it. Okay, so that's a great description of service workers. One other question. You know, if we're just talking about dealing with a desktop application, there's some unpredictability of networking. So your network connection might be flaky. How do service workers help with the unpredictability, the potential of drop packets and so on that might go on in networking? So I'm going to expand on your question even more in that Slack is a is considered a desktop application, but it is written as a with web technologies as a website. You can access Slack in your browser by going to you know, slack.com slash your team ID or whatever it might be. So certain assumptions come with that from people who are using Slack, which don't usually come from when you're using a website. It's things like, you know, what happens with drop packets or what happens if my CDN fails for a specific request and I don't get, you know, the response I was expecting back. There's lots of assumptions you have about desktop applications that you don't necessarily have about websites. So service workers have certainly helped us deal with that in that to the end user, dropped packets or you know failed requests to the network just go unnoticed because sometimes we're able to reserve those assets back from the service worker. Like I mentioned before, we try code splitting large parts of the Slack app where we know that the user isn't going to use that part of Slack until they actually start interacting with it. So for example, when you go into your preferences, we don't actually download the code, the JavaScript and the CSS to show you the preferences pane up front when you initially boot Slack. You only need it when you actually click on the preferences button to open it, right? But we download all of those assets into the service worker's cache into the cache storage when the service worker initially loads or installs itself. So when you go to open the preferences, it's almost instantaneous, the preferences pane loading, because we don't have to wait for the network to go and download all of those things and then open it up again. And so that's great because, you know, for an application, Slack might be, you know, 200 megabytes, 300 megabytes on a user's machine if it was installed and coded as an actual desktop application. But it's not. It's, you know, web languages. We initially download maybe a meg of resources, JavaScript, CSS, all of that kind of stuff up front. We download the rest of it in the background and then start using it via the service worker, requested via the service worker when it's needed. Let's talk about more aspects of the front end. What role does Webpack play at Slack? 
So Webpack is a asset bundler. So modern JavaScript applications are usually written in ES modules using this import-export syntax. And everything is very modulized. It's kind of broken down into individual files and everything is, you know, hopefully very pure functions, easily testable, things like that, easy to navigate when you're a developer in your repo. But Slack, for instance, we have thousands and thousands of JavaScript modules. And, you know, we have imports and exports everywhere, but that doesn't necessarily play well with what a user would want when they start using Slack. A user doesn't want to have to download 10,000 JavaScript files to start using Slack. You want to download five or, you know, however you've code split your application because, you know, the browser just passes it that way before HTTP2, where everything was very, you know, synchronously downloaded. Uh, trying to wait for 8,000 files to download would take seconds, if not minutes, uh, which would be crazy. So Webpack is a piece of technology which essentially takes all of these ES modules, imports, exports, and turns it into a few JavaScript files where all of those things have been concatenated and optimized for that specific file that all of those ES modules end up in. It's a very powerful, very configurable piece of technology. We at Slack use it extremely heavily. It powers all of our uh, development workflows. It helps us deploy code and it helps optimize all of our code for us as well. So where does it fit into the build process for Slack? Yeah, so at Slack, we have a continuous integration deployment model. When you open APR, we have you know, hundreds of CI jobs which start running to test that your PR isn't going to break anything or you know, cause any sort of regressions. And a part of those things, are, part of those tests are end-to-end -end tests. To do an end-to-end -end test, you have to build the application with you know, the new changes that you put into it. And so Webpack does that for us. It you know, is triggered in a Jenkins box somewhere. It builds the Slack app. It's deployed to a QA environment, which is like a production-like environment for us. And then we run automated tests against it to make sure that nothing has regressed in the changes that your PR has introduced. If that's all good and done, then we get someone to review the code. Every single PR has to be reviewed at Slack by another developer. I believe that's for security and audit reasons as well. And then if that's all good, then it's merged into master and is automatically put onto the next deployment train and you know it's staged and then pushed out to production. And during staging, again, we you know will run Webpack with all of the PRs which were recently merged to master to build those production assets and then, you know, get them out. In what ways has Webpack performance been an issue in the past? It's interesting. When Slack, the company, initially started, the deployment process was extremely simple, actually scarily simple, in that files were literally just concatenated together and then uploaded to the CDN. And that was, you know, that was the asset that you would download. And so some of these files ended up growing to, you know, like tens of megabytes large because there was no cleverness around how they were optimized or anything like that. Webpack is very powerful because it can perform those optimizations like tree shaking, i.e. getting rid of code which isn't used anywhere, compressing and minifying all of your code before it's then uploaded to the CDN. And that can be orders of magnitude in the 
file sizes from just, you know, a simple concatenation to doing all the smarts that Webpack does. But there is a trade-off, and that is build time. A simple file concatenation, which is what Slack had previously, takes milliseconds. It's just opening files, concatenating them together, writing them somewhere, uploading, and you're done. But Webpack has to go through this you know, entire build process. It has to create an AST of all of your imports and exports. It has to figure out where the optimizations are. It has to run through compression algorithms, all of these kind of things. And so that takes a lot longer. And so when we initially introduced Webpack, a lot of developers struggled going from waiting seconds for a deployment to waiting minutes for a deployment. A good Slack deployment at the moment where everything is built and then put onto staging, I think on average takes just over five minutes, which is extremely fast for a Webpack deployment. I've heard of companies who have to build, you know, use Webpack as well. And some of their build times are 45 minutes long and take, take like... 50 gigabytes of node memory to try and build it all, which is madness. And that long period of time, is that due to the fact that Webpack has to crawl the source code and build a dependency graph and understand how to reduce that dependency graph and apply like style sheets and stuff to get the resources to what their final shape and size would be yeah that's exactly right it, i believe it's because you know web applications are large especially at enterprise companies they have to traverse all that code they have to build asts they have to apply optimizations they have to turn it back into source code create source maps for all of your code things like that it's an extremely expensive operation but the benefits to the end user are huge. Like they have to download a lot less code. They get optimized code, which loads much faster in their browser or in their you know, application. So there's certainly trade-offs. When we initially introduced Webpack at Slack, we spent a long time you know, trying to optimize our build time and reducing that as much as possible to make sure that our end users were getting the best result, but our developers and our deployment process was also getting the best result possible. So we've developed a lot of internal plugins. We've contributed back to the Webpack source code to try and really optimize it as much as possible. And we, we're in close contact with the, you know, the main Webpack contributors as well to try and see how we can help them, how they can help us optimize things further. I want to play the humility card here because there was an episode recently where my naivete when it comes to front end was revealed where I just didn't really understand what Webpack <laughs> was and, and what it did yep. in practical terms. So I know that, you know, if you go back five, eight years, front end development, it's like if you want to render a front end application, you send to the user like a CSS file like an HTML file and some JavaScript and everything gets rendered by the browser, by the client's browser. And so, you know, if your client, you know, your customer who's downloading your website is having to render all that stuff on their browser, it might render really slowly. And, you know, they might have a lot of expensive assets that they have to load. And there's a lot of network requests. And you fast forward to today where you can do a lot of server-side rendering and pull in assets into the web page or pre-cache assets, put them at the CDN or something. If you do a lot of the rendering of the JavaScript frameworks like React and or Vue or whatever, 
and you, you get the style sheets applied on the server side, then you can push out the resources in a much more fully developed page for loading for the user. I guess I, I just I'm looking for confirmation that I understand this, this correctly, that this is actually what Webpack does. It's, it, it is. Yeah, that's right. I think what Webpack really excels in is helping with the developer experience. So previously, like you mentioned, when you were deploying websites, you had to you know, write your HTML page and then in a separate file, write your JavaScript. And you know, if you wanted to interact with an element, apply an ID to a tag or to a you know specific HTML element, and then grab it with JavaScript and start interacting with it in HTML. And there's there's a disconnect there because you know things they they're not joined together in an explicit way. It's an implicit connection between the two. And that's same for CSS, right? You in your HTML you add you know a class with whatever class name you want. And then in a CSS file, you target that class and apply your different styles to it. But again, an implicit connection between the two. Where the front-end world is today is that all of these things are a lot closer tied together. So instead of writing three separate files now, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, it's actually more combined into one. It's, it's not like a mix of you know one file doesn't have a section of HTML and a section of JavaScript and a section of CSS because you'd still have that implicit dependency between them instead of an explicit one. Instead, the languages which have developed, a language which you may have heard of called JSX, it essentially mixes all of those things together to create explicit dependencies between them. So I can write you know, HTML code and then in line in that HTML code, you know, loop over a loop to create, you know, a list of items. And then in that list of items, I can specifically say what styling it should have. And all of those things are very explicit. But the browser doesn't understand that, you know, the browser is still, I want an HTML file, a JavaScript file, a CSS file. And so that's where Webpack helps us. It essentially takes this conglomerate JSX, which we've created, and all of the conglomerate JSX files that we've created, it creates this dependency tree between them all to create a single file of JSX. And then it transforms them into the languages, the native languages, which the browser understands. So it strips out the JavaScript and puts it in a JavaScript file. It strips out the CSS and puts it in a CSS file. And then the browser knows how to load those things. And just like the old days, the good old days which we had, the browser can download those from the CDN, pass those, execute those, render those. Got it. And that happens for every web page across my application, or is it one big JSX file that satisfies the entire application? Webpack produces one big JSX file, but then Webpack, even before it gets to your browser, turns those into JavaScript, individual JavaScript and CSS and HTML files. Got it. And the term Webpack configuration, so that implies that different applications might want Webpack to parse their 
application resources in different ways. What are the things I can tinker with in a Webpack configuration? Oh, absolutely everything. It's incredibly powerful, and it's it's actually really fascinating. So let's think of an example. CSS is really interesting because you could import a CSS file into a JavaScript file, and then when it goes through Webpack, you know the you know you have a explicit dependency between a CSS file and a you know a React component, and so that CSS can then be moved into you know your production ready CSS file at the end of the day, and so you know that's just a you know load the file, put it into a new file, but you might want a more explicit dependency between CSS. You could import the CSS file, and then perfectly specify in your JSX where you want that CSS to be used. So you say, you know, I want to import all of my styles from main.css or whatever it might be. And from main.css, I want my list item to have the class list and my bullet point, ordered bullet point to have the class list dash dash bullet or something like that. And so there have been Webpack plugins and loaders which have been written, which are smart enough to say, okay, I know that even though this developer has imported the entire CSS file, they've only specified that they wanted this list and list bulleted class. So I'm only going to take those two classes and put them into the final production CSS file, which a user then downloads. So that's extremely powerful, right? Like you're only shipping to the end user what is being used at the end of the day, which is great. There are so many other things which Webpack can do. You can write your own custom plugins to, you know, move files around or transform them or, you know, add things to them, whatever you might want to do. For example, it's like we have Webpack plugin, which traverses all of our source code and finds all of the strings which will be shown to a user, extracts those into a JSON file so that they can be then sent off for translation because Slack isn't available in like 15 different languages, right? However many it might be. So that's done through Webpack. We, you know, create an AST, traverse those, grab all the strings, JSON file. Got it. So it can be customized to create the layout of text files and JavaScript and CSS and stuff that I want my, basically my my file schema to be all the different files across my application, you know, the complex spaghetti of different pre-compiled, pre-rendered JavaScript, JSX, I don't know, maybe the CoffeeScript or TypeScript and stuff. And the the final result is something that is ready to be shipped to the end user. That's exactly right. Ready to be shipped to the end user and something the browser can understand. I think at its at its most simple form, Webpack is essentially Webpack essentially takes entry points. You tell it, you know, where your code starts and mm-hmm. where it can start traversing from. That's step one. Step two is it creates an AST tree of everything it's, you know, all of what it's traversed. Step three is it applies transformations, whatever you tell it to do. And step four is produce the assets from those transformations. That's it in its simplest forms, you know, entry, AST, transformations, output. That's it. But, you know, you get to define the how the AST is loaded and you get to define those transformations to then produce those final assets. Beautiful. So we've only got like 10 minutes or so left, but I wanted to get 
or maybe we can go a little bit longer, but I wanted to get into a little bit of the usage of how Slack uses React and Redux and does state management because Redux is going to hold my state for the React components on the Slack application. And if I close my Slack application, if you were just keeping everything in memory, then all that state would just get thrown away. But if you can checkpoint some of that state to disk, then the next time I boot up Slack, you can have a quicker load time for the React components. Can you tell me about how Slack does state management in React? We could talk for hours about this. It's <laughs> okay. it's a fascinating concept. We're all in on React and Redux at the moment. But we have come across really interesting issues from using from from using from not using the technologies but from implementing the technologies on large slack workspaces where there's you know tens of thousands of users using slack lots of events are coming over your websocket all the time you know users sending messages in channels they're uploading files they're reacting to different messages with emoji so much is happening and all of that comes over the websocket and all of that is stored in redux that's the power of redux it's a single data store where you can only put in data one way and only get out data one way at slack itself the company slack the company an individual's Redux store updates about 10 times a second. 10 times a second we're updating that Redux store. It's it's like a crazy amount. Of course, you know, we've tried optimizing that as much as possible. We, you know, throttle and debounce and, you know, do things like that. But there are some things where you can't do that or you don't want to do that. So that's been a, an interesting edge case for us in, in adopting these technologies. We've had to develop very strict like ESLint plugins to, to try and detect performance regressions. ESLint plugins to detect performance regressions. That's usually done through end-to-end -end testing. But there are specific things where, you know, if you don't write React components in you know, the most optimized way, or you're allowing it to update more frequently than it should do, that could introduce performance issues on the on the desktop client that a user is using. So we've had to be very thoughtful about, about how that all works and how that's implemented. Slack is so data-driven that, you know, Redux being a single source of data, it can, it can produce issues like that. We also use Redux in a slightly different way than what other people might use. So we actually, the common use case for Redux is to create a single Redux store and then put all of your data into that store. And there's like a big warning message at the top of the Redux docs, which says, don't ever create multiple stores because you're going to have a bad time. As Slack, we have created multiple Redux stores. We're not having a bad time, but there's a good reason for it. It's because of security. You know, when you load a Slack application, you might be signed into your work workspaces and you might be signed into, you know, personal workspaces. And we don't necessarily want that data to cross. We don't want to store all of the channels together or, you know, all of the users together, things like that. So we have individual Redux stores for security reasons. Slack is extremely security conscious. And so when you actually switch between different workspaces in Slack, what's actually happening is we just switch out the underlying Redux store 
with the new workspace that you're switching to. And then we allow React to re-render everything because, you know, React is data-driven and suddenly it finds itself with a whole load of new data. It says, oh, I should be looking at this specific channel and, you know, I should be showing this specific message. Let's re-render to show those things. So that's another interesting thing of, of how we use Redux at Slack. There's lots of little things like that where we've tried, you know, being clever and there's good business reasons for doing things like that as well. But overall, we've had a great experience with, you know, React and Redux. I think the biggest power for us from those two pieces of technology is how standardized it has made our code base. Like I mentioned before, one of the most powerful things that we have done for all front-end developers at Slack is standardize how they are writing code because it means everyone understands all of the different repos implicitly and can contribute and can debug anywhere. It's amazing. That is all thanks to React and Redux for sure. Let's zoom out and, and, and give a little bit more context for what you've actually standardized there because, again, there are these clients like Android and iOS that are not using React, right? I mean, That's correct, yeah. So, but it sounds like even those client networking flows have been impacted by the fact that you've refactored the web front end or the electron front end to have a certain data flow. So can you just give a little bit more context? Uh, like now that we've talked through a lot of things, just... Tell me a little bit more about what you mean in terms of this standardization. Yeah, so standardization, I'm specifically talking about web technologies here. Okay. That is the Electron app, essentially, on Mac, Windows, Linux, things like that. We have standardized how to access data, how to store data, and how that data is then rendered on the screen so via like React. disk versus CDN versus server. It's more the developer workflows, I guess, or the, the programming principles. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, 10 years ago, let's say, if you wanted to store state about a specific component, how would you do that? There's hundreds of ways you could do that. You could, you know, if let's say you're talking about a toggle for, for you know, a sidebar, you click on it, opens, closes. You could apply a class to that component, which says it's open. You could store that state in a global object and you know read it from that global object to check what state it's in. You could store it in local storage. You could store it in a cookie. There's like so many different ways that you could have stored data. And if you don't have a forced standardization across your code base, all of the, your different developers are going to store that data in all different locations. But since we have implemented Redux, and Redux has become our source of truth, there's only one way to get data and store data now, and that's through Redux. And so that standardization has been extremely powerful for us. Saying that, though, we have actually standardized some things across the mobile clients as well. So the iOS and the Android and the web infra teams meet on a regular cadence to talk about, you know, different optimizations that they've, they've figured out and how to load things better. And so a lot of the programming principles and the kind of way that things have been designed have been implemented in 
web and mobile clients, but of course they've been done in their own native languages. It's the kind of the tech spec which is shared, but the implementation is different. What are the outstanding front-end performance issues that you'd still like to make to the Slack front-end? Great question. I mean, there's always more that we can do. So one of our goals for when we rewrote the web application was to get Slack to boot in a specific amount of time. You know, previously on large workspaces, Slack took a good 10 seconds to load or something like that. You might remember there were those kind of like cutesy messages, like welcoming you to Slack or things you can configure. With the rewrite, we actually had to remove those because Slack boots so fast now that you don't have time to read those messages, which is nice, right? But we know that we can get it faster, even faster still. That's kind of an interesting thing to think about because, you know, how often do you really open Slack? You open it once and then it's open for, you know, an average of eight hours a day on someone's machine. But you could introduce interesting concepts if you can do really fast boots of Slack. For instance, you know, if a user has Slack open for eight hours a day, well, Slack releases code you know, 20 times a day. And there might be, you know, bug fixes in there. There might be new features in there. How do we get that onto a user's machine if they consistently have Slack open without reloading or refreshing the page? Well, if you can guarantee that a reload can happen within, you know, a second or a couple of seconds, you could do it in the background when you know that Slack isn't being used or is hidden behind different windows. You know, you could really quickly reload the client for them so that they pick up the new code and get all the, the latest and greatest features and bug fixes and things mm. like that. So you can almost see it performance as a feature as well when you when you think about things like that. Other things are always, you know, we tend to concentrate a lot on the actual, you know, the typing experience and the, you know, switching between different messages and how fast you can interact with with Slack because that's it's insane power. You know, you can connect with your colleagues at an instantaneous rate. And so if there's any, you know, lag typing or channel switching lagging or anything like that, you know, that's going to affect your your experience of using Slack. There's a really interesting concept in performance in that you don't notice good performance. You only notice bad performance, right? You never notice when a website has, you know, gotten faster or is more snappy or whatever, (laughs) but you always notice when it's taking that extra few seconds to load or something like that. So that's kind of how we think about performance at Slack is that the work that we do should just make everything more simple, more productive, you know, a more pleasant experience to use. If you ever notice something, you know, performance-wise in Slack, we need to fix that. And that's, you know, we've done a bad job there. So that's how we tend to think about it. Anuj, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. Really appreciate your time, Jeff. Thank you. 